I would like to have a healthcare system rather than a medical care system because I think medical care is part of healthcare, but healthcare is much bigger. And part of why we contribute to the inequities is because we spend so much time and money on medicine and not on health. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the Gritty Nurse podcast. Hi, my name is Amy, and I am the co-host and co-founder of the Gritty Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion related to health and healthcare. On our podcast, we shy away from nothing, discussing hot topics in healthcare such as mental health, social justice, health equity, women's rights, and women's health, and nursing as a profession. Hi, listeners. Thank you so much for joining. And today's topic of conversation is elderhood. My two guests are Louise Aronson and Robbie Felton. Louise is a physician, a geriatrician. She's a writer and educator and a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. She is the author of Elderhood, Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine, Reimagining Life. Unsurprisingly, this was a New York Times bestseller and a Pulitzer Prize finalist. She's a graduate of Harvard Medical School and of Brown University. My second guest is Robbie Felton. He just graduated Brown University, where he studied public health. He is the co-founder and CEO of Intis Care. Intis Care provides data and services to help integrated care programs improve outcomes for their patients in Medicare-managed care. You will hear him speak about PACE programs. PACE stands for Program of All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly. It's a type of home and community-based service that provides medical services and supports everyday living needs for certain elderly individuals, most of whom are eligible for benefits under both Medicare and Medicaid. Before we get to the conversation, a little story. Growing up in Westerly, Rhode Island, attending Westerly High School, and being an editor for the yearbook, I would go around town with my best friend Trish to try to get advertisements to support the yearbook. We would always go to this cluster of medical offices because, well, we had really good luck. One physician, Dr. Gilly, was a geriatrician, and he was particularly kind to us, supportive of us, and year after year, took out a yearbook advertisement. All right, let's get to the conversation where we're talking about elderhood. The beauty of this book is it's not a medical text necessarily, although it's medical, it's religious, it's philosophical. It's sociological, it's anthropological, it's historical, it's even a bit of business. So, Robbie, with your lens and with the work you do, what were your thoughts as you read the book? The book to me was very topical given the work that I'm doing, working with uh, PACE programs and a lot of these integrated care programs that are focused on like frail, vulnerable, older adults, a lot of them low income. And it's interesting watching your kind of progression through this space, working in geriatrics, um, understanding the healthcare system, and then seeing doctors around, like my sister's in medical school, and and them not receiving the training uh, specific for this space that's so important. Medicare is such a huge issue um, in, in terms of how can we make care more efficient, higher value. And this book touches on all of those things, and it's relevant for anyone who's going into medicine, uh, geriatric medicine, or going into any sort of value-based care that might have a primary care or senior care lens. So, um, yeah, it, it touches on all of those things that you had mentioned. Um, and 
Yeah, I appreciated the lens it was written from. In terms of post-book policy and progress in healthcare, are there any things today that get you really excited about the future of senior care and so on? Traditionally, there's been sort of geriatrics, which is focused only on the frail, and there's been this sort of um, let's delude people into thinking we can cure aging and help them live forever, which is a multi-billion dollar industry. And I am seeing some movement towards um, evidence-based good care that promotes health um, and doesn't just help you once you're end stage. So I think that's exciting. Um, there are innovative programs um, looking into, you know, how do we do that better? Um, would I like to see a whole lot more than I'm seeing? Absolutely. Um, but I think people are starting to at least have to pay attention um, in some ways. I, I also think pandemic was a bit of a distraction, um, you know, through nobody's fault. I mean, obviously nobody wished for that, but um, a positive of it was that it showed the system can change really quickly when it wants to. A negative is that there's a lot of moving back towards what was pre-pandemic um, and and then another positive is that almost every sector is frustrated by that, except for perhaps those who benefit most from, from you know, the current system. Yeah. I was struck in the book at your honesty and your authenticity, which, you know, uh, some people that well, of course, you know, why wouldn't she write about herself? Why wouldn't she write her experience? But you decided to share your emergence into burnout and then your re-emergence. Yeah, well, I guess I thought about what I like best. Um, and I'm more likely to believe someone if I feel like they're being authentic and fully honest. And a lot of people, you know, I mean, I suppose when you create a, a version of yourself, whether it's a video, audio or writing, you are creating a persona. Um, but you have greater authority uh, if it feels more honest, more genuine, more authentic. Uh and part of, you know, sort of the structural conceit of the book was taking me through my different perspectives on old age from not thinking about it to thinking about it, like, essentially as a foreign country or something that had nothing to do with young me, um, you know, to, to thinking about it in a very traditional geriatric way to thinking that geriatrics is actually part of the problem in its very narrow conception of, of aging, uh, and so once I had done that, it wasn't such a stretch to use me also as, you know, sort of a paradigm for some of the failings of the larger system. Um, although that wasn't my original intent. I, I started out just by writing, I looked at all the sort of doctor books with their nine to 13 chapters, each of, you know, 25 to 35 pages. And I was like, that's what I'll do. That's what works. Um, and then at the same time, I wrote essays about the healthcare system. And it was only when I realized they were part and process, part and parcel of the same process that it became the book it is. Yeah. Robbie and I spoke about vis-a-vis -vis health policy and, you know, what's happening and whose voices are being heard. Um, you had very strong pushback against Zeke Emanuel. Um. Yeah, I think that came from a bunch of places. Uh, I think his notion, he wrote up, wrote off so much of humanity. You know, I, I felt like he wrote off almost everyone who's female and 
and all the people who don't have opportunities to do the sorts of things he's had opportunities to do. And he did so with no insight that many of those opportunities had to do with being a white heterosexual American male. Um, and that just pissed me off tremendously, um, you know, it shows, but he, you know, to be that powerful and not contextualize your own experience and to make comments like a life where you're just taking care of others is not a life he's interested in living, that makes me irate. Um, and, and, and the fact that people, other people amplify those voices, um, you know, but, but who were the other people doing it? You know, like part of the, those quotations were from the Atlantic article and part of it was an interview for the New Yorker. And obviously, you know, I read and listened to both those things because I appreciate those sources of journalism. And yet he was interviewed by David Remnick, another, you know, white privileged American, you know, heterosexual male. And, and I think that's more not coincidence that they had the conversation they had. You just talked about caregivers and there are many aspects of the book that I like and, and how round you were, we're filling in the holes or the pieces of elderhood that some people may not be aware of, may not be sensitive to, um, such as the health toll on caregivers and this concept of robotic caregivers. Can you tell the audience a bit about those two? Um, well, the robot one, actually I got to, cause the New York times asked me to write an editorial and, you know, I, feel like the answer to that has to be yes, of course, you know, but, but my first response when I got the email was like, oh, you know, like, like pretend, you know, like, oh, poor you. I had, I had a, a pretty primitive negative response initially. Um, but what I like about taking on challenges is that then I started to look at some of the literature and it forced me to, to have a, a, a bigger perspective on it. And I got more pushback from that article than from anything else. But but part of it was also realizing that there are things you can control and things you can't control. The move towards robotic caregivers, we can't control because people with a lot of power and money are going to put all that into making robots and not into actually being caregivers themselves um, or understanding what it really does to people or paying the people who do it, right? Because there's the people who invent those robot caregivers who are come from certain demographic groups and the people who do most of the caregiving who come from very different demographic groups. So in my ideal world, would that be how it would go? Not necessarily. On the other hand, I felt like if those of us who understand about caregiving and care about caregivers could weigh in on it, you know, if we pretend it's not happening, they're going to do it in ways that may not be you know, that will not be optimally helpful. Um, but if we could weigh in on it and say, how about if it does the physical things that cause injury to low income people, usually people of color who are doing most of this work, um, and allowing them to use their unique humanness to be, you know, to still get a job and provide the care part, you know, not the heavy lifting, that might be helpful. How about if we do it to preserve the dignity of those who need care, such as, you know, wiping your own bottom or getting help to do that? Um, so, so that was how I got into the robot caregiver. In PACE, what we've witnessed is the more time that clinicians and caregivers, social workers, case managers, uh, RNs, care coordinators, the more time they get to spend with the patients or the members, the, the better the outcomes will be. Uh, so 
one of the things that we aim to do is reduce the amount of time that they have to spend on some of the more mundane things that aren't actually <clears throat> involved in improving the care for those individuals. Um, like the administrative burden is, is terrible. The fact that people have to pull reports and, and so on just to have an understanding of the patient from a, um, I'd say like an objective, uh, like whether it's coding or what conditions this person has um, perspective, like it's, it's terrible. And we want to ensure that people have as much time with the individual as possible. And it kind of ties into what you were um, just hinting at with the, like even robots, like if, if a robot can take away some of the um, aspects that aren't actually personal or humanistic um, so that we as, as like a caregiver could spend more time with the loved one or uh, the patient, uh, it, it improves like the livelihood or it decreases the burden that it has on caregivers and increases the amount of time we can have human to human interaction. Before you went to college and you were spending time with your mom and doing the home visits, was there an aspect of that toll that you saw on caregivers? So honestly, I, I first experienced the caregiving space or uh, just healthcare in general through my mother. Like she was a geriatric social worker and she would drive me with her. I'd ride with her. We'd go to um, across like Detroit, Ann Arbor, like throughout Michigan, like the kind of Southeast portion. And I'd be in the home with her. And even to this day, like I still have gone delivered meals with her, like going inside of the, the patients or her cases, like their homes. And, um, like prior to that, I, I like hadn't had any experience caring for a grandparent. Like I have grandmother who, um, relatively young, so hasn't had that experience with her yet. Um, but, I, I definitely had the kind of hands-on experience seeing what it's like being in someone who's low income. Like they, they don't have the resources to keep themselves healthy for the most part. Like, and it's, it's very sad to see, but it's made me passionate about being able to help them like better have access to high quality care. Yeah. So, Louise, you um, have seen both in the inpatient and the outpatient setting the health toll on caregivers, and what really stands out to you? Um, I think there's so little supports. You know, we have, I mean, there's so many imperfect systems, but we have universal child care, and we don't really have universal elder care, um, even though it's a fairly universal experience. Um, you know, some people don't have the opportunity to live into old age, but most of us do at this point. Um, and, and so there's a lot of knowledge that people don't get. There was an article in JAMA, oh, I want to say maybe 2018, that showed that about 7% of family caregivers got any training. Um, and so then you don't know there's equipment that might help spare the physical toll on you. Um, and the physical toll also comes from the stress of feeling alone with this huge responsibility. Now, we shouldn't make it all bad because there's also a decent literature um, on how it gives people a sense of purpose. And that's actually a wonderful thing at all ages and particularly for sort of same age, older caregivers, it can make a big difference. 
um, and a sense of cultural um, belonging in certain traditions. You know, immigrant communities will often have that, that it it is a duty and a service. Um, There's some interesting data on African-American women also getting more positivity um, than people from certain other groups. Um, So it's not all bad, but physically it's hard to do unless the person you're caring for is little. And we know much of the time it's a smaller female caring for you know, someone else and, and, you know, sometimes a much larger male. Um, I've seen people whose own health deteriorated because they couldn't leave the person to go get the care they needed. Um, you know, there's nowhere to leave them or a person you would trust to do that work for you. Um, that, that's a social failure to my way of thinking, given how near universal the challenge is. Yeah. One of the first stories you share in the book uh, is you are a child and you are at summer camp and you have appendicitis. What happened? (laughs) Well, the nurse kept thinking it was, I was nine and she kept thinking I was just homesick or something. Um, And then it got much worse and I started sort of vomiting and fainting. And my cousins who were 10, 12, and 14, I can sort of remember them in a little line saying, you have to take her to a doctor, you have to take her to a doctor. So they did, they took me to a doctor. And I remember lying there and that nurse on one side and the doctor on the other, and he put his hand on my abdomen and his face changed, you know, and I didn't really know what it meant, but what it meant was I had, my appendix had ruptured and I needed to go to the hospital. Um, But the nearest hospital was sort of through the mountains and it was a heat wave. And so they put a mattress, you know, and this was the early seventies. Um, so, you know, and it was an old station wagon I was in. And so bump, bump, bump over the, over the mountains we went. Um, and I hallucinated. I just remember seeing like, why would there be that on the roof? You know, cause you're young and you don't really know. Um, but then I got there and, and they took good care of me. Although it was early enough in time that my mother wasn't allowed into the hospital when she arrived. She had to wait for visiting hours. And, and now we allow parents to be with children, but we don't as equally allow children to be with their frail older parent. Um, who then ends up having falls or worsening confusion. Um, I realize I digress, but just again, showing away, we have these social failures contributing to then we say, oh, it's because they were old that they fell, as opposed to there is a pretty uh, helpful thing, you know, sort of psychologically and practically having the parent with the child or the child with the parent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, In preparing for the episode, not only did Robbie and I read the book, uh, we chatted a bit and I watched all your little media tags on your website. And I noticed you were on Good Morning America and on the Today Show. And I feel the receptions were different on each of those. And on the Today Show, there was a lot of pushback on you titling this stage of life and therefore the book Elderhood. And uh, they were two women hosts who basically said they didn't want to think about aging. And you've quite graciously turned it around and said, yeah, but it's, um, you know, why we should direct it. Let's take, you know, control of it and help it be a very positive experience. And they just weren't having it. Yes. And one of them clearly had had a lot of plastic surgery and, you know, looked beautiful from a distance, but up close, it was somewhat disturbing. Um, 
you know, I'm obviously in no position to be commenting on people's looks, but uh, it, it was like, woo, you know, like I, whatever you're trying to do isn't really working. So maybe, you know, thinking people are happier if they don't have so much internalized ageism and they're also healthier. Um, you know, you, your option, if you really don't want to age, you, you can make it go better or less well if you're a person with the resources those two had. Um, as Robbie was saying earlier, there are people who don't have the option of safe exercise outside the home or healthy foods if they live in a food desert. Um, but you can't stop it from happening unless you die young. And so why not make this phase better um, instead of just denying it? Um it's a tough thing. Yeah. And you two are both motivated to try to make this phase of life better. And I have to tell you that, you know, as a physician reading this and having gone to med school, and it is true, curricularly, uh, there's not a lot of geriatrics. However, I was quite lucky. My assigned faculty who taught me how to do a history and a physical, but specifically the patient-centered history, was a geriatric psychiatrist named Jim Stinnett, and he was fantastic. And I didn't even know that there were such uh, specialists, geriatric psychiatrists, and his empathy, his kindness, his patience, um, his um, framing of questions really imprinted me strongly. That's fantastic. But we shouldn't have to rely on you know, luck of the draw to train people to take care of the population that needs most health care. And people say, oh, well, you know, they're just using the health care dollar. Well, when did you last hear somebody say, like, it's crazy how much of the education dollar kids use because it's like way disproportionate, you know, or, you know, what do we think the homelessness crisis? Well, that's all about adults uh, or the military, but we blame old people for their needs. I'm always curious about someone who has so much experience in this space. Like, if you could restart and rebuild medical education, how would you go about it, and how would you want it to be structured? If you had your own med school and you you ran the system, what would what would that look like? Oh wow! So much power all of a sudden. Um, <laughs> I think um, we hold stuff that's been done for a long time to a different standard than new stuff. Um, so, you know, some they'll say, oh, this needs to be evidence-based, but other things are not. So um, part of what I would do would be to just start again and start from the outcomes we want. Um, so we want compassionate people. We need a people with a range of skills and interests to care for different populations and with different degrees of, you know, uh, more relationship-centered specialties and more procedure-centered Um in terms of age, I just think we we have a system that um, is largely focused on people between the ages of 20 and 60. And I would make it either so that you covered all, but maybe more so that as you went through either what's normal or what is pathology for each organ, disease, whatever, you would consider the range of childhood, the range of young adult versus middle age, the range of elderhood, um, so that we would see all people. And then I would do that um, similarly across gender, gender identity. Race becomes more difficult here. Um, 
because it's so tied into socioeconomics um, and it's very, you know, it's country specific, but also not. Um, and so I think we introduce um, more in terms of economic levels and opportunity levels. Um, and I'd have to think more about how we can do that. I would also try and produce people um, who are excited about the areas where we need more clinicians. Um, and so a big part of it would be that people don't have to pay um, for their medical education. Um, there can be service on the other end. But, you know, when you finish, you know, if you come from nothing and you end up with $200,000 in debt, you're going to want to be an orthopedist or an ophthalmologist. And that's not, you know, we need some good people in that area, but it's not really what we need. Um, I would also have a lot more of sort of ethics and sociology and those things. And people say that isn't medicine. And I guess my answer to that is um, I would like to have a health care system rather than a medical care system, because I think medical care is part of health care, but health care is much bigger. And part of why we contribute to the inequities is because we spend so much time and money on medicine and not on health. So probably they'd need some economics also, which I'm not very good at. You might have noticed in the book. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, a restructuring and a... A grading system also that values um, how you do teamwork and how you relate to people, all those sort of so-called soft skills as much as your ability to excel at a standardized test. I mean, I could go on and on. Those are my off-the-cuff thoughts, but it's really about um, incentivizing the things that we disincentivize now that I feel like are critical if you're going to be if you're going to augment the health of people and disincentivizing some of the other stuff, not to the point of giving it a disadvantage the way we have with primary care and um, equ health equity, um, but just to make it a little more of an even playing field where, you know, if what you love is fixing bones, you know, have at it, but you're not going to get paid five times more than a pediatrician or a psychiatrist because what they do matters equally, at least. Amazing. No, that's I. I mean, I think that's an, an amazing perspective on flipping the system to make it better quality care, also more equitable care across the board, more accessible. What a great conversation! And Louise, Robbie, and I had a really good time speaking about the book. Robbie and I agreed it was a fantastic read, and. I'll be honest, audience, long books are not my fave. And in fact, I really like that feeling of accomplishment of a shorter book. This book is so well written, and it really does approach elderhood from all different angles, that it is inspiring, it is a positive take on that stage of life, and well, I cannot recommend it enough. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.